Welcome to Bethel World Outreach Church. Our values are devotion, diversity, and discipleship. Devotion through honoring God by trusting His Word, praying, and worshiping together. Diversity by embracing God's heart for every nation. And discipleship by helping others follow Jesus. So join us as we're reaching a city to touch the world. When JT said that, I thought, well, man, he knows something I don't know. It's going to be amazing good. I was <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Well, it's always a joy to be here. You know, when I was in high school, I, was a, I played basketball, but I wasn't very good. So I sat on the end of the bench, and I, got, I, was, I, I backed up a superstar. I backed up the star of our team. So I would get in at the last minute to kind of give him a little rest. So they call me Minute Rice. And um, so I feel like today I'm kind of that, I'm in that role. I'm backing up a superstar in Pastor James. So I get to have a little moment here to preach. But uh, appreciate Jim and Kathy being here, my dear friends and others, other pastors and leaders. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this moment that we don't take for granted. Thank you to be able to assemble, to seek you, to hear you that we believe enough in you to come here to think that something could happen as a result of what we hear. Lord, we want to unite our faith with, with what is spoken out of your word so that our lives can take a step forward and not backwards. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, just a, a quick thought. The Purple Book, just so you understand, people asking what it's about. Years ago, Pastor Steve Merle uh, and me, we wrote this book and we called it Biblical Foundations. And it was supposed to be blue. It was supposed to be the backdrop of a blueprint. You know, made sense, you're building lives, so we have a blueprint. Well, the printer made a mistake and it came out purple. And so the printer, we started haggling because we had a lot of these books they, that we printed up. And so I got on the phone and said, look, he said, look to me, he said, look, Rice, just, I won't charge you, just don't make me reprint them. So I got up and I said, look, and it was an ugly purple. It wasn't a nice purple. So I said, so I just held it up and I said, you know, we're going to, we got this ugly purple book we want you to do. And, and I just, it was just so ugly. It just had to be commented on, you know. So anyway, that caught on. We changed the name to purple book and the question became, have you done the purple book? So now the purple book is almost 2 million in copy, uh, in print, uh, 26 languages, so God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? Take our mistakes, take our weaknesses, and make something good out of it. So I want to talk a little bit, not just the origins of the name, but just what is, what's, it, what's it about? What is the purple book? Why do you need something like this? What is it another thing? Somebody is trying to sell you or peddle this or peddle that. No, that's why we bring it down when we ask you to do something. We bring it down as is as cheap as we can. In fact, I was on the phone with our publisher. We have a co-publishing uh, co deal. We can print them up for our churches, but Zondervan prints them up retail. And so we had different, th different people on the marketing call because they're doing a new push in the coming months. And there was a ministry that I began to go down and give Spanish purple books to in Baja in Mexico. And so David Angulo, who leads that, Baja Christian Ministries, he got on the phone with Zondervan this week and he said, he said, we have given out and we gave it to him. We said, look, if you give them to people and they'll do it, then we're going to give them to you. So they've given out 364,000 purple books, 
202,000 and change have completed it and they actually give certificates of completion. They have 9,000 purple book groups in every state of Mexico and 25,000 prisoners in prison have done the purple book. So there was a little study at UC Irvine and they were, they were commenting on the fact that crime rates were dropping, especially in a season ago, dropping violent crime and the pastors, they brought me down to, to Mexico and about a 500 different pastors and they said, we believe it's obviously God's word, but this tool that helps get this word, it's kind of like you're planting a seed, you've got to have a little tool to dig it in and put the seed in. So that's what the purple book really will do. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is a great text to start, and I'm going to actually pull out my phone because I don't even trust me to turn back and read that. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 1, and I'm just going to read to the end of the Bible. All right? So he says, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So a lot of activity in church, people coming together. But when there's strife, when there's discrimination, when there's, when there's the same things happening out in the world in our midst, then we're just like anybody else. And he says, you're, just, you're, only, you're behaving only in a human way. For one, one says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? What is Paul? What is, what is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. So we are going to be rewarded for what we do. We, we don't earn our salvation, but it's like I tell people, I said, this won't get you into heaven, but it'll get you a better seat once you get there. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Okay, get ready. Verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. But let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test the quality or what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, I'm supposed to be a theologian, and I'm supposed to give you all the answers. And when people say, um, what about that fire thing? You know, I, I, I get it, get it, but you know, he will be saved as yet through fire. I'm not quite sure, but it doesn't sound good. I don't want to, whatever that is, whatever that salvation by fire is, I don't want that. 
Okay, understand what I'm saying? Okay, that's good. Now, I want to tell five things to kind of think about. Number one, the foundation is Christ. The foundation is Christ. Number two, part of the foundation is our response to Christ. Because if all you believe is Jesus is a nice guy and he's just there to help you, then your response will be like the young lady spoke about just maybe tipping him or whatever. When the New Testament, when they talked about Jesus being Lord, it says they were cut to the heart and their response was repentance, a change, 180 degree change, they receive the power of the Spirit. So foundationally speaking, you have Christ, you have the response, okay? And then you have this, that foundations are laid intentionally. Foundations are laid intentionally. If, if it's it's, it's kind of like when you build a house and they say, well, did they ever lay a foundation? I'm not sure. Foundation is the most critical thing as we'll read today. Foundation are, are laid intentionally. Foundations will be tested They're going to be tested. We're going to talk about that. And then number five, that foundations, I believe, are the most critical factor to determining your destiny than anything else. You think it's all about what you can do and your gifts and your performance. Really, it's about what's underneath, what's unseen. The foundation, your foundation will determine how high, uh, in a sense, that God can take you without you falling over and crumbling. Okay, so the foundation is Christ. It's our response to him. They're laid intentionally, which means here at this church, we know that something's coming. And I'm going to talk about that in a minute. There will be testing coming, and we want you to be ready for that because the work will be tested. Okay, and we want you to also understand that we want you to to do whatever God's called you to do. There's nothing worse. We've, we, we heard it said as young believers that, you can destroy with your character what you build with your gift. There's been many a great, eloquent believer, great Christian speaker, and then all of a sudden, one day, there's this massive crash. And, you, and when we go then and do the autopsy, we realize as we dig down deep that something was missing. That something was missing. Maybe their gift got them kind of moved along because, oh, he or she is anointed. But yet there wasn't the time to take to say, what's really going on? What's going on in your soul? Look at Hebrews chapter 6. Pull my phone out again. My wife hates when I do this. But it's really the black backdrop. Do you see this? I feel like I'm in a commercial. The black backdrop really is easy to read. Hebrews chapter 6. Therefore, let us, this is verse 1, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation. Now, here's the foundation. Repentance from dead works and faith toward God. See, repentance is is turning. Repentance is, the Greek word is metanoia, which means to change your mind. But when the Hebrew apostles and prophets came into the Greek culture, they were searching for a container, a word that could describe the Hebrew concept of repentance. And the best word they could come up with was the Greek word metanoia. Aristotle, Greek, famous Greek philosopher, would have used it as changing your mind. But the Hebrews knew repentance was more than just a change of mind. It was a turn. It was a repentance. It was a turning. And so repentance is, yes, there is changing of the mind, but it also is a change of direction. 
and you have to turn from something to something else. You see, it's like two sides of the same coin. You can't turn from something without turning to something else. So you turn from dead works in faith toward God. So it's a simultaneous turning from and turning to. So that's why repentance and, and uh, repentance from dead works and faith toward God. It says, and instructions about washings or literally baptisms. The laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Now, those are foundations. You see people that are at our church laying on hands, you think, well, that's kind of weird. I think I saw something like that on television. Well, that's because you don't understand the foundational teachings. And he says, I want to take you to maturity. There are things that can happen, whether it's ordaining elders, whether it's laying hands on the sick, whether it's, as Paul says uh, to Timothy, he said, the gifts that came into your life through the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Their spiritual gifts are imparted. Uh, in fact, in the book of Acts, this sorcerer guy was watching the apostles and they were healing all these people. It says, but when they laid hands on people and saw them, uh, the sorcerer saw them seeing people filled with the spirit, that's when the magician guy said, hey, I'll pay you money if you give me the power to do what you just did, to lay hands on people so they can receive the Holy Spirit because of the transformational power, okay? He says, we're gonna lay this foundation, and he says, and this we will do, verse four or verse three, if God permits. So we wanna get this foundation right. <laughs> now, probably the most quoted scripture is Luke chapter six, and let me, just, let me just say this, why a foundation? Why lay the foundation? It's because the foundation is gonna be tested three ways. It's going to be tested by the flood, it's going to be tested by the fire, and it's going to be tested by the fight, the flood, the fire, and the fight. Luke 6, verse 46, Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? He says, if anyone comes to me, let me get, make sure I get this. Anyone comes to me, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man built a house on the, the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Now, if I have an image there, uh, when you think about a house being built on the sand or not being built on the rock, now, what kind of person would build a house in a condition like this, knowing that a flood was coming, and knowing that this is not going to stand up to this. I, I've, been, I've, been, I've been across flood zones, I've been across earthquake zones, and I've wondered to myself, why do some houses stand, and why do some houses fall? August 8th, 19, just leave that up there for the sake of it. If they don't like looking at me, they can look at that, going, man, is that down in A1A, where is that? 30A, Destin. The um, August 8th, 1993, my best friend in life is a man named Ron Lewis. And Ron and I were in the island of Guam, and, and the island was hit by one of the worst earthquakes in the century. 
was 8.1 earthquake, August 8th, 1993, 6.35 p.m. And we were staying in the same room in room 911. And all of a sudden the TV flew across the room, the walls began to split. Um, for 60 seconds, it shook. Now, by the time we got down into the lobby, obviously we survived. You could go around the island and see different buildings that had collapsed. In fact, there was one beautiful hotel that they tried to get us to stay at that had kind of collapsed like an accordion. And, and they were telling us, oh, it's a new hotel. We can really get you a good deal. Now, when I'm looking back now, looking at that good deal that I almost got into versus the older hotel, but the thing about our hotel, the reason why it didn't fall was because somebody foresaw that we were on an earthquake zone or in an earthquake zone, and they built a foundation that could withstand it. You see, we are living in a fault line in this culture. Okay, if you're living out, Pastor Jim used to live out there in Los Angeles. You know, if, if, you're, if you're living on the San Andreas Fault, uh, there are some codes. There, there, there are things they're going to check to make sure you built right. And in churches, many churches, it's just like it doesn't matter if you, you know, every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around, not even God. If you want to accept Jesus, lift up your eyebrow. Eyebrows are being raised all over the building. I see that eyebrow. So it isn't just about do you want to feel better? Do you, no, no, no. Look, look, we're living in a cataclysmic moment in history. If this was a movie we were in, you know, when you're in a movie, you can tell when something's going on because the music goes up. You know, you think the bad guy's dead or the monster's dead, and you look down at your watch, and there's another hour left in the movie. He ain't dead. He's coming back. You thought he died. He will be back. The flood's coming, okay? No foundation. Jesus taught about this in Mark chapter 4. He said, the sower sows the word. He's teaching the most basic teaching that I think you, you and I can understand about what's called what we call the sower in the seed. And he said, some seed falls beside the road. And look at what it says, Mark 4. He says, and he said, do you understand this parable? How will they understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones that are beside the road where the, or path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that is sown in them. Okay? And these are the ones sown on rocky ground and the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. Hold it right there. Oh, man, praise God. Pastor James, that message was incredible. Oh, I'm telling you, I'm going to go watch it online. You receive it with joy. But look at what happens. It says, and they have no root in themselves but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So just as immediately as they receive it with joy, they fall away. Why? Because they have no root. This is a synonym. This is another picture of a foundation, the roots. My, we grew up in Texas, and my dad was in the oil business, and so in the early 60s, there was an oil strike in southern Mississippi. So my family uproots, and we moved to this little town called Macomb, Mississippi. It's about an hour and 15 minutes south of Jackson on I-55. So we lived there for, you know, the most formative years from first grade to ninth grade, or eighth grade, rather. I was in Macomb, Mississippi. So many fond memories. 
So the other day I was on my way down. We, were, we visited University of Southern Mississippi, went down into the New Orleans area. So I had a, one of my, our workers here, Joe Penrod. Joe's father is Guy Penrod from Gaither Vocal Band fame, the, the person with the long hair. So Joe's with me. So I said, Joe, I'm going to take you down memory lane and we're going to go to the house I grew up at. So we go down, turn through the neighborhoods, and there's the house my parents built. And we had to leave in 1970. So I'm sitting out there, I'm looking at this house. I looked at him, this is just last week. I looked at him, I said, I'm going to do it. So I get out, I knock on the door, step way back. I know that trick. I thought, okay, I don't look like, I don't have a, I don't have a name tag on. They won't think I'm one of those people. Um, I don't have anything in my hand. They won't think I'm the other people. So, you know, door, you know people that knock on doors, you got to just make sure you don't, you know, trigger somebody. So I step back. And nobody came to the door. And all of a sudden, a woman comes out of the garage toward this big tree. And I walked over, and I I said, hi. I said, I'm Rice Brooks. She goes, oh, I know who you are, Ricey Brooks. (laughs) They call me Ricey. See, don't you call me Ricey. (laughs) I know who you are, Ricey Brooks. So here was a girl a young woman, a woman, girl, a woman who went to school with me my exact grade, and she said, our parents, my parents bought this house from your parents in 1970, and we never left. So we sat out there talking, but there was a tree right in the front yard, and the tree had, and so I began to tell the story. This tree used to be a big, massive oak tree, and a hurricane came through and knocked it down. Now, my dad replanted a a magnolia, but it used to be a bigger giant tree. Well, the tree was completely knocked down. I mean, all the limbs. And so my dad just had it cut down in 1967, and there was just a stump there. And my brother, I used to convince my dad loved my brother more than me. Completely convinced. You know, I mean, if I did, I mean, one time my brother did something so bad, I thought, you know, when dad gets home, he's going to kill you kill you, could get you. So dad comes in the house and I'm hiding behind the couch because I didn't want to get, you know, a body part that hit me me in the head and I'm hiding behind the couch and all of a sudden my dad steps up to my brother and goes, did you do this, Ben? And Ben said, yes, sir, I did. And he said, I'm proud of you for telling me the truth. Here's five (laughs) dollars. In my little mind, I registered that. Five dollars was big money in the 60s. So one day there was two things you couldn't do in our house. You couldn't sass my mama, and number two, you couldn't use my daddy's toothbrush. And one day my dad came home, and somebody used his toothbrush because, you know, he brushes it in the morning, and when he leaves, comes back, it's wet. You know, I mean, it should be dry. Well, he came back in the tooth. So my dad came in the house and goes, somebody used my toothbrush. Now, in my little mind, I didn't use that toothbrush, but in my mind, that $5 thing came back. (laughs) Dad, I did it. What? You used my toothbrush? You know, I started getting spanked, you know, and then all of a sudden I said, no, I didn't. Oh, no, now you're lying, you know. <laughs> so that's the kind of stuff. Well, one day my brother did something terrible, and my dad said, your punishment is to go dig that stump up that had been, that was the remnant of what had happened at that hurricane. And I started crying because I got punished for digging in the yard. If I got out there in the yard and started hacking things out with my little Boy Scout hatchet, I get punished for that. He gets punished by digging. He's out there for weeks. 
weeks digging. The more he dug, the more root was under the ground. I had a little stingray bike. I'd just drive around him like this and just kind of scratch out a little bit, you know, just excited to see that my brother was having this task. And see, this is what it is. You can go buy a little corn stalk in the field and you can, you can pull it up just quickly because there's no roots. Our foundation has to go deep. There's flood coming. It's going to be tested by fire. It's going to be tested by fire. Peter warns us, 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal. He says, I, I rejoice now a little while if necessary. You've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness, genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to be result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 4, I believe, he says it again. He says, do not be surprised. Same book, Peter, but Peter, now here Peter is the one who got tested by fire. So he writes this letter to us 2,000 years later. He's reminding us of what he went through and failed and says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as if some strange thing were happening to you. This is strange. I mean, I went down front. Pastor, you prayed for me. I thought you were going to pray that all my problems would go, and, 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 I, and I give my money, and I do all this stuff, and the, and the fire gets hotter. That's really what you're signing up for. You're signing up for fire. Now, you say, well, I don't want this. I'll just, if I, if I just kind of get away from Jesus and do this, will the fire stop? No, though, it's worse fire there. This is, the, this, is, this is a controllable fire. This is a fire where somebody's watching over your life and, and stewarding you, just like those who were thrown into the fiery furnace. And they looked up and they said, look, I thought we only threw three in there, and there's a fourth guy in there, and that fourth man looks like the son of the living God. Go back to 1 Corinthians 3, what we read in that whole text in the opening, where he says, if any man's work will be tested... Each one's work will become manifest. So basically, as Paul said, you are our work in the Lord. Now, you can float around and look. A lot of people migrate from church to church. We understand that pastors in this city, we love each other. We're, if, you know, when people come up to me and say, oh, I was hurt in this church. I go, well, if you stay here long enough, you're probably going to get hurt too. So why don't you go back and fix that, and then if God still wants you to come, then come on back. Okay. Because really, we want, to, we want you to be ready to, be, to, to survive the fire that's coming. I, I, when I, th I thought of this image, here was, the, here was the best image I could think of. And it's really coming into the atmosphere. When you think about what it takes to come into the atmosphere, is my atmospheric picture coming up. Okay, there it is. Here's the fire that I think of. That when you, can you imagine the friction and the fire and the way you have to be designed and built to withstand that fire. I think, just keep that for a minute. I think when you, when you start, you think it's tough to get into our atmosphere. Wait until you try to get into heaven's atmosphere. Think about trying to get into the atmosphere of heaven and the fire that burns up. All my, all my little things I thought I did as I'm coming into heaven's atmosphere all the stuff I thought was my little ornaments and stuff I did for Jesus just burned up. All the things in my imagination that I thought were so powerful and I was, wasn't I a great guy? Everything is tested by fire. 
We want to build, we want to see your, now, it, maybe it's in another congregation, but somewhere, sometime, at some point, you're going to have to settle down and have somebody help you get ready for that kind of fire, because it's coming. And then finally, the fight. The flood, the fire, and the fight. We're called, we're called to fight the good fight of faith. It's a fight in our minds. It's a, I mean, I, I talk to students a lot. That's probably, I talk to more students than people of any other age group on different campuses. And I, I talk to them about what's in their minds. I said, what would happen if you had a TV screen on your head and every thought in your heart came up on that screen, kind of like Times Square? It'd be a lot of hats being worn, wouldn't it? All of us have something in our hearts, in our minds, that are, that are heart, our thoughts in our head, rather, that our heart resents. You can't stop the birds of the air from flying over your head, but you can stop them from building a nest in your hair. So here's what Paul says to the Corinthians. He says, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. He said, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful, to destroy strongholds. Now, what are the strongholds? We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, why would you take every thought captive? Hello? Why would you take every thought captive? Because if you don't take it captive, it will take you captive. We're in a fight. Mike Tyson once said, everybody has a plan until somebody gets punched in the face. <laughs> oh, you got your Bible, you got everything like this, and all of a sudden you get punched in the face. You know, I've, I have a friend that... Um, Almost 10 years ago, I met him. He's a boxer. Eight world championships. He's Filipino. I went out to do a fight and to beat, you know, this was in 2011. I went out and I've never really spoken about this publicly. And I just thought about this. So I'm going to do it. It's been 10 years. He's a friend. He wouldn't care. I was just on a Zoom call. He's now a senator. I was on a Zoom call just a few months ago and he was telling these other senators about this story. This, the good part of it, not the bad part, I will tell. The good part was is that I went out to, to see him in 2011, and he, was, it, he and his wife were about to split up. And so a sportscaster who'd heard me talk back in the 80s in the Philippines said, there's a guy that I maybe can help you. So I got out there and ended up ministering to him, doing a Bible study. And one, wins the fight. He and his wife get back together. They get baptized. It's a great story. I mean, it's like one of these, you know, it's an amazing story of really what happened. And then about a year later, I got a call from him. He said, would you come back to Vegas and we're, gonna, we're going to uh, have another fight. I'm going to fight the same guy again. This has been the fourth time. He didn't want to fight him, but his promoter said to do it. So I get out there and he's now, he's been a Christian now for a year, a full, you know, born again Christian. And, and uh, when I get there, it's just like, it's like, it's like his, his entourage is like 150 people. And before the fight, I'm sitting there going, hey, you know, look, because he's just, it's almost like when you get saved, you feel like you're invincible. 
So he gets in the fight. I have my wife there. I have my three sons. I said, you know, this is going to be great. You know, he's going to win this fight. He's beating this guy a bunch. Sixth round. He's winning the fight. The guy's nose is broken, his opponent. His nose is broken. And right with 10 seconds, you know, at the end of a fight, they clap like that. That means 10 seconds left. They clap. And he goes in because they told him, they said, if you don't knock this guy out, you won't get a chance to fight Mayweather. So he was being overly aggressive because of the pressure to really definitively win this fight. Because the last fight he fought, which I had met him at the, the third fight with this guy, I, that was the first time we'd met. He barely won and the people were booing. I remember it was big controversy. So he went in and this guy with a broken, with a bloody broken nose would have easily lost the fight by, they would have probably stopped at the next round, hit him. He came down and hit him. And I'm telling you, it wasn't a knockout. He was put to sleep. And I mean to tell you, my wife started crying. I looked and there's his wife. She runs into the ring. I thought he was dead. People, I mean, so finally I get back, and so I didn't get to him until midnight. I stayed in his room from midnight to 7 o'clock the next morning because the doctor came in and said, don't, don't let him go to sleep because you can get knocked out like that. And he looked, he, first thing he wanted to do is watch the replay of the fight. And I said, don't. It's not a good ending. <laughs> but... He said, I never saw it, never saw it, possible. Do you know, God has blessed him. He, such a humble man, he's, he learned from that, he's gone on, won championships, he'll fight again. I mean, he's an incredible person and a credible father and a follower of Christ. But here's the point, and I think if he was standing next to me, he'd say, tell this story and tell it like this. No matter who you're fighting, you think you've got the upper hand. But many, many people that lose in life spiritually never saw it coming. You begin to think to yourself, oh, I got this. In fact, that was one of the messages I was telling them. I'm not trying to, I don't take, listen, when it comes to this being a chaplain for people, I tell when people become Christians, like when I go, am invited to speak at a, before a Super Bowl or before an event, and they think, oh, you're going to be our good luck charm. You're going to tell us about how Jesus is going to help us. And I look at them and say, listen to me. It's good that you're following Jesus, but Christians have never done well in Colosseums. You know, yeah, he's he going to bless you, but you might get eaten. You just might get eaten. You have to fight to the end. He who endures to the end. I beg you today. We're not trying to sell books. We're not trying to do something like this. Pastor James he is such a believer in this. This is his idea, not mine. Let's get people, let's make sure these foundations are strong because it's not, stand up with me here. I'm gonna, this will help me stop. Foundations are not just, it's not just about you. Well, my foundation's strong, Pastor Rice. I mean, I've just, I've just known, you know, Tennessee folk are like Texas folk, you know, and I start talking to old folks in Texas, they'll kind of grab their leg, and they'll go, and, they'll, and, and you don't know whether they're cussing out. They go, hell, I'll tell you what. I say, hell, what's that hell? Is that an H or a W? Well, I'll tell you. The good Lord, I've been a knowing God for so long. My foundation's strong. I think you, you, you are in an illusion. 
You don't even know, like Samson, that when the enemy comes upon you and you think you're strong because you used to be strong, and all of a sudden there's nothing there. Because the flood's coming, the fire's coming, and the fight never stops. It does not stop. Father, I'm asking today for a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. The eyes of our heart being opened so that we may know the hope to which you've called us and the riches of your glorious inheritance that's in the saints and the exceeding greatness of your power toward us who believe. This is in accordance with the same working of your mighty power which you brought about in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him far above all rule and authority and every name that is named, not only in this age, but that which is to come. And you've given us Christ, who is the head of the church. May the foundation of who you are, the truth of your identity, the resurrection that verified you are the Son of God, we hold fast to you as we've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so we walk in you. And Lord, I pray that not only would we have this revelation of the necessity to check these foundations, but we as a people would all become foundation layers. Foundation layers are disciple makers. If you want to know, well, how do I know to make a disciple? If all you do in someone's life is help them get this foundation, and that purple book is just simply taking you through the foundational teachings and as you go through them, it will re, re, uh, reaffirm, reestablish, strengthen your own as you watch others help. You help others, you're helped. You help others, you're helped. Maybe you're here today and you say, I already know that. I'm, I'm here today because I didn't want to be at church on Sunday, but my life is shaking the flood, the fires, and the fight. I'm, I'm flat on my back, my family, my, my situation. If you need help today, if you need help today, just right now while our heads are back, just, just make your way down front. I'm going to actually come down. And even if it's one of you, it doesn't matter. Listen, I was the only one that responded to a call like this. Listen, just whatever, if you need help, just come on down before we stop. And if this is too embarrassing, I understand. But I at least want to make sure you have a chance to not leave here. If you came here thinking, I'm, I'm in, I need something, I need help from God, get down here that's you. I'm going to give you five seconds if that's you. I know there's more than one. I know there's more than one. Just come on. Just Whatever it is, just honest, just honesty. You say, well, I've known about Jesus, but yeah, this is not about knowing about him. It's about experiencing the power of this. I need some of life group leaders, ministry team folks, just come and stand as people come on down. Just keep coming. Just come on down where I can see you, okay? I mean, I can see you, but I want to just see your eyes. Come on, a little closer, a little closer, a little closer. Anybody else? Anybody else that you say, I don't want to leave this place today and not do something about what I see. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you that even others that are going to come down, listen, it doesn't mean that this is one time. You, if, if you can't, if you just need to come down a little bit after the, the crowd's dismissed, then that's fine. 
find somebody, if you came with somebody, just turn to them and say, look, I, this is me coming down front. I'm just telling you, just tell somebody. There's nothing magical about coming to this front. It's just so we can see you and help you. That's it. Lord, I'm asking for these that are down here that they would not take this trip in vain, this public coming down to say I'm in need. Lord, may every person that's down front, may this be the last time they have to respond this way because the next time they come down front, they'll be helping others. Listen, the next time this happens to you, you're going to be helping other people. This is just you getting the help so you can help someone else. Thank you, God, for what you're doing. Bless our pe- Bless these people, Lord. And all those that came today, Lord, let, let this summer be a summer of change. Transformation as we focus on your word and dig, dig down deep and lay this foundation on the rock. In Jesus' name, amen.